Chapter 13 of The False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 13 Reincarnation. It took a little time and patience, but on his third essay, Lanyard found a key which agreed with the lock. He permitted himself a sigh of relief. Ninety-fifth Street was bare. The door set flush with the outside of the wall afforded no concealment to the trespasser, while the direct light of a street lamp at the corner made his lonely figure uncomfortably conspicuous. Apparently, however, he had not been observed. Gently pushing the door open, he slipped in, as gently closed it, then for a full minute stood stirless, spying out the lay of the land. Fitting precisely his anticipations, the garden discovered a fine English flavor. It was well-kept, modest, fragrant, and, best of all, quite dark, especially so in the shadow of the street wall. Only a glimmer of starlight enabled him to pick out the course of a pebbled footpath. A border of deep turf between this and the wall muffled his footsteps as he moved toward the back of the house. The library windows, deeply recessed, opened on a low, broad stoop of concrete, with a pergola effect above, and a few wicker pieces upon a grass mat underfoot. Noiselessly, Lanyard stepped across the low sill and paused in the cover of heavy draperies commanding a tolerably full view of the library if one somewhat unsatisfactory since the light within was by no means bright still this circumstance had its advantage for him with his dark topcoat buttoned to the throat and his collar turned up to hide his linen he was confident he would not be detected unless he gave his presence away by an abrupt movement something which the lone wolf never made at the moment Mr. Blensop seemed to be engaged in the surprising occupation of discoursing upon art to his caller. The latter occupied that chair which Lanyard had refused on the far side of the table. Thus placed, the lamplight masked more than revealed him, throwing a dull glare into Lanyard's eyes. His man sat in a pose of earnest attention, bending forward a trifle to follow the exposition of Mr. Blensop, who stood beneath a portrait on the wall between the chimney-piece and the windows. His attitude incurably graceful, a hand on the switch controlling the picture-light. Apparently, he had just finished speaking, for he paused looking toward his guest with a quiet and intimate smile as he turned off the light. "'And that's all there is to it,' he declared, moving back to the table. "'I see,' said the other, thoughtfully. Lanyard felt himself start almost uncontrollably. Rage swept through him, storming brain and body, like a black squall over a hill-bound lake. For the moment he could neither see nor hear clearly nor think coherently. For the voice of this latest incarnation of André Duchemin was the voice of Carl. When the tumult of his senses subsided, he heard Blensop saying, "'I'll write it out for you,' and saw him pick up a pad and pencil and jot down a memorandum. "'There you are,' he added, ripping off the sheet and passing it across the table. "'Now you can't go wrong.' "'I precious seldom do,' his caller commented dryly. "'I think,' Blensop began, and checked sharply as the man Walker came into the room. 
"'Beg pardon, Mr. Blensop?' There was an accent of impatience in those beautifully modulated tones. "'Well, what is it now?' "'A lady to see you, sir.' Blensop took the card from the proffered salver. "'Never heard of her,' he announced brusquely at a glance. "'She asked for Colonel Stanistreet, or for me?' "'Colonel Stanistreet, sir. But when I said he was not at home, she asked to see his secretary.' "'Any idea what she wants?' "'She didn't say, sir, but she seemed much distressed. "'They always are. "'Hm. Young and good-looking?' "'Quite, sir.' "'To say, I may as well see her,' said Mr. Blensop wearily. "'Show her in when I ring.' Walker shut himself out of the room. "'It's just as well,' Blensop added to his caller. "'You understand, my clear fellow?' "'Assuredly,' The man got up, but Blensop contrived exasperatingly to keep between him and the windows. "'I'm to be back at midnight?' Twelve sharp. You'll be sure to find him here then. Mind leaving by this emergency exit?' "'Not in the least.' "'Then good night, my dear Monsieur Dauchemin.' Was there a hint of irony in Blensop's employment of that style? lanyard half fancied there was but did not linger to analyze the impression already the secretary had opened the side door in a bound lanyard cleared the stoop then ran back to the door in the wall but with all his quickness he was all too slow already as he emerged to ninety-fifth street his quarry was rounding the avenue corner defiant of discretion lanyard gave chase at speed but though he had not thirty yards to cover, again was baffled by the swiftness with which Carl got about. He had still some distance to go when the piece of the quarter was shattered by a door that slammed like a pistol shot, and with roaring motor and grinding gears a cab swung away from the curb in front of the Stanistreet residence and tore off down the avenue. Swearing petulantly in his disappointment, Lanyard pulled up on the corner. The number on the license plate was plainly revealed as the vehicle showed its back to the street lamp. But what good was that to him? He memorized it mechanically, in mutinous appreciation of the fact that the taxi was setting a pace with which he could not hope to compete afoot. The rumble of another motor car caught his ear, and he looked around eagerly. A second taxicab, undoubtedly that which had brought the young woman, now presumably closeted with Mr. Blensop, was moving up into the place vacated by the first. In two strides, Lanyard was at its side. "'Follow that taxi!' he cried. "'Number 76385. Don't lose sight of it. But don't pass it. Don't let them know we're following.' "'Engaged!' the driver growled. "'Hang your engagement. Here!' Lanyard pressed a golden eagle into the fellow's palm. There will be another of those if you do as I say. Let's go, the driver agreed with resignation. If the cab was moving before Lanyard could hop in and shut the door, the other had already established a killing lead, and though Lanyard's man demonstrated characteristic contempt for municipal regulations governing the speed of motor-driven vehicles, and racketed his own madly down the avenue, he was wholly helpless to do more than keep the tail-lamp of the first in sight. More than once that dull red eye seemed sardonically to wink. Still, Lanyard did not think... Carl knew he was pursued. His conveyance had passed the corner before Lanyard emerged from the side street. 
There being no reason that Lanyard knew of why the spy should believe himself under suspicion, his haste seemed most probably due to natural desire to avoid adventitious recognition, coupled with, no doubt, other urgent business. At 72nd Street, the chase turned east, with Lanyard two blocks behind, and for a few agonizing moments was altogether lost to him. But at Broadway, the tide of southbound traffic hindered it momentarily, and it swung into that stream with its pursuer only a block astern. Thereafter, through a ride of another mile and a half, the distance between the two was augmented or abbreviated arbitrarily by the rules of the road. At one time, less than two cab lengths separated them. Then a Ford, driven fordishly, wandered vaguely out of a cross-town street and hesitated in the middle of the thoroughfare with precisely the air of a staring yokel on a first visit to the city. And Lanyard's driver slammed on the emergency brake, barely in time to escape committing involuntary but justifiable flivercide. When he was able once more to throw the gears into high, the chase was a long block ahead. They were entering Longacre Square before he made up that loss. And at 44th Street, again, a stream of eastbound cars edged in between the two, reducing Lanyard's driver to the verge of gibbering lunacy. A car resembling Carl's was crossing Broadway at 42nd Street when Lanyard was still on 7th Avenue north of the Times Building but only a minute later his driver pulled up in front of the hotel knickerbocker and lanyard peering through the forward window saw the number seventy six dash three eighty five on the license plate of a taxicab drawing away empty from the curb beneath the hotel canopy he tossed the second gold piece to the driver as his feet touched the sidewalk and shouldered through a cluster of men and women at the main entrance to the lobby that rendezvous of broadway was fairly thronged despite the slack mid-evening hour between the dinner and the supper crushes but lanyard reviewed in vain the little knots of guests and loungers if carl were among them he was nobody whom lanyard had learned to know by sight on board the assyrian with as little success he searched unobtrusively all public rooms on the main floor it was of course both possible and probable that carl himself a guest of the hotel had crossed directly to the elevators and been whisked aloft to his room with this in mind lanyard paused at the desk asked permission to examine the register and being accommodated was somewhat consoled if his chase had failed of its immediate objective it now proved not altogether fruitless a majority of the Assyrian survivors seemed to have elected to stop at the Knickerbocker. One after another, Lanyard, scanning the entries, found these names. Edmund O'Reilly, Detroit. Arturo Velasco, Buenos Aires. Bartlett Putnam, Philadelphia. Cecilia Brooke, London. Emile Dressier, Genève. Half inclined to commit the imprudence of sending a name up to Miss Brooke, any name but André Dochemin, Michael Lanyard, or Anthony Ember, together with a message artfully worded to fix her interest without giving comfort to the enemy, should a chance to go astray, the adventurer hesitated by the desk, and of a sudden was satisfied that such a move would be not only injudicious, but waste of time. For, now that he paused to think of it, he surmised that the young woman, young and good-looking, on Walker's word, who had called to see Colonel Stanistreet, was none other than this same Cecilia Brooke. 
What more natural than that she should make early occasion to consult the head of the British Secret Service in America? A pity he had not waited there in the window. If he had, no doubt the mystery with which the girl had surrounded herself would be no more mystery to Lanyard. He would have learned the secret of that paper cylinder as well as the part the girl had played in the intrigue for its possession, and so be the better advised as to his own future conduct. But in his insensate passion for revenge upon one who had all but murdered him, he had forgotten all else but the moment's specious opportunity. With a grunt of impatience, Lanyard turned away from the desk and came face to face with Crane. The Secret Service man was coming from the direction of the bar in company with Velasco, O'Reilly, and Dressier. Of the three last named, but one looked Lanyard's way. O'Reilly, and his gaze, resting transiently on the countenance of André Duchemin, minus the Duchemin beard, passed on without perceptible glimmer of recognition. Why not? Why should it enter his head that one lived and had anticipated his own arrival in New York by twenty-four hours, whom he believed to be buried many fathoms deep off Nantucket? As for Crane, his cool gray, humorous eyes, half-hooded with their heavy lids, favored Lanyard with casual regard, and never a tremor of interest or surprise. But as he passed, his right eye closed deliberately, and with a significance not to be ignored. To this, Lanyard responded only with a look of blankest amaze. Chatting with an air of subdued self-congratulations pardonable in such as have come safe to land through many dangers of the deep, the quartet strolled around the desk and boarded one of the elevators. Not till its gate had closed did Lanyard stir. Then he went away from there with all haste and cunning at his command. The route through the café to Broadway offered the speediest and least conspicuous of exits. From the side door of the hotel he plunged directly into the mouth of the subway kiosk, and, chance favoring him, managed to purchase a ticket and board a southbound local train an instant before its doors ground shut. Believing Crane would take the next elevator down, once he had seen the others safely in their rooms, Lanyard was content to let him find the lobby destitute of ghosts, to let him fume and wonder and think himself perhaps mistaken. The last thing he desired was entanglement with the American Secret Service. For Crane, he entertained personal respect and temperate liking, thought the man socially an amusing creature, professionally a deadly peril to one who had a feud to pursue. Leaving the train at Grand Central, the adventurer passed through the back ways of the terminus into the Hotel Biltmore, upstairs to its lobby, thence out by the Vanderbilt Avenue entrance walking through 44th Street to 5th Avenue, where he chartered a taxicab, gave the address of his lodgings, and lay back in the corner of its seat, satisfied he had successfully eluded pursuit, and very, very grateful to the subway system for the facilities it afforded fugitives, like himself, through its warrant of underground passages. One thing troubled him, however, without respite. The Brook girl was on his conscience, to her he owed an accounting of his stewardship of that trust which she had reposed in him. It was intolerable in his understanding that she should be permitted to go one unnecessary hour in ignorance of the truth about that business, the truth, that is, as far as he himself knew it. If through Crane, or in some unforeseeable fashion, she were to learn that André Duchemin lived, she would think him faithless, 
If she knew that Duchemin had been one with Michael Lanyard, the lone wolf, she would not be surprised. But that, too, was intolerable. Even the lone wolf had his coat of honor. Again, if she remained in ignorance of the fact that Lanyard had escaped drowning, she would continue to believe her secret at the bottom of the sea with him, whereas, in the hands of the enemy, in the possession of Karl and his confederates, it was potentially heaven only knew how dangerous a weapon. Abruptly, Lanyard reflected that at least one doubt had been eliminated by that encounter in the Knickerbocker. It was barely possible that Carl had gone to the bar on entering and added himself to Crane's party, but it was hardly creditable in Lanyard's consideration. He was convinced that, whether or not Velasco, O'Reilly, and Dressier were parties to the Hun conspiracy, none of these was Carl. As for the Brook matter, he felt it incumbent upon him immediately to find some safe means of communicating with the girl. She could be trusted not to betray him to the police, however much she might at first incline to doubt him, but he would persuade her of his sincerity, never fear. The telephone offered one solution of his difficulty, an agency non-committal enough, provided one were at pains not to call from one's private station to which the call might be traced back. With this in mind, he stopped and dismissed his taxicab at 57th Street and 6th Avenue, and availed himself of a coin-box telephone booth in the corner druggists. The experience that followed was nothing out of the ordinary. Lanyard connected with the Knickerbocker promptly, with the customary expenditure of patience, laboriously spelled out the name B-R-O-O-K-E, and was told to hold the wire. Several minutes later, he began to agitate the receiver hook and was eventually rewarded with the advice that the Knickerbocker operator, being informed his party was in the restaurant, was having her paged. Still later, the central operator told him his five minutes was up and he consented to continue the connection only on deposit of an additional nickel. Eventually, in sequel to more abuse of the hook, he received this response from the Knickerbocker switchboard. Wait a minute, can't you? Here's your party. Lanyard was surprised at the eagerness with which he cried, Hello! A click answered, and a bland voice, which was not the voice he had expected to hear, Hello! That you, Jack? He said wearily, I am waiting to speak with Miss Cecilia Brooke. Oh, then there must be some mistake. This is Miss Crook speaking. Lanyard uttered a strangled, Sorry, and hung up, abandoning further effort as hopeless. That matter would have to stand over till morning. Time now pressed. It was nearly eleven. He had a rendezvous with destiny to keep at midnight, and meant to be more than punctual. Walking to his apartment house, he proceeded to establish an alibi by entering through the public hallway and registering with the telephone attendant a call for seven o'clock the next morning. In the course of the next half hour, Lanyard let himself quietly out of the private door slipped around the block and boarded a riverside drive bus alighting at ninety-third street he walked two blocks north on the drive turned east and without misadventure admitted himself a second time to the stanna street garden end of chapter thirteen recording by william tomko